Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Greetings to you, our listeners. My name is Roger Zatwebembire, the director of the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. In my experience with the Ministry of Apologetics, I have come across a number of people, or even religious groups, that will claim to be Christian, yet distort or deny or even seek to destroy some of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. They look Christian in every sense of the word, but when you look at their central beliefs or the kind of teachings that characterize Christianity, they actually deny or distort them. And at the center of this confusion and controversy is the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done? What has he said? And what are the implications of all these questions? We've been looking through a series entitled, What Did Jesus Really Mean? Please notice we are not saying, What Did Jesus Really Say? We know what Jesus said because we read the New Testament, we read his teachings, his statements in the Gospels. So that is not in question. What is in question, however, is what did Jesus really mean by what he said? You will notice that Jesus was one of the most powerful teachers of his day. A man who spoke with authority, with power, with great wisdom, and leaves no room whatsoever for anyone even to think for a moment that there was a man better than him. Clearly, even the religious leaders of the day confessed that no man had spoken with such power and authority like Jesus. Nonetheless, you will also notice that in his teachings, Jesus made some outrageous, outstanding, astounding statements that quite often dazzle the imagination of Bible readers to the extent that some are never sure what Jesus really meant by what he said, and many out of ignorance or innocence have misunderstood, misinterpreted, or even misapplied some of the teachings of Jesus, which is why we have cults and false teachers today. False teachers and cultists are not people who necessarily hate Jesus, but they are people who misrepresent him, who misidentify him, who distort what he has said, who misunderstand the meaning of his statements, and eventually what they end up with is a group that seemingly looks Christian but does not really believe Christian fundamental teachings, which is why it is important that we ask this question, what did Jesus really mean by what he said? Today we want to deal with one of those passages that raises such controversies, and this passage is actually in Matthew chapter 5, from verses 43, and you can read on to the end of the chapter. This is a chapter that uh, is written about the Beatitudes, or what we know as the Sermon on the Mount that begins in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus speaking to his disciples and followers, most of whom claim to believe in him, and now he is giving them teachings of the kingdom. What does it mean or what does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? When I say that I am a follower of Jesus, that I believe in God, that I belong to the kingdom of God, what does that even mean? 
How can the world see it? How does my lifestyle mirror what I confess and profess? And as Jesus is dealing with the ethos of the kingdom or behaviors and relationships that take place in the kingdom of God, he comes to Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 onwards where he addresses the topic of love for enemies. Now listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please notice that the passage or the phrase we wish to talk about is this very last phrase in verses 48, where Jesus says, Be perfect therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is one of the most misunderstood Bible passages ever. In fact, we have religious groups and some autonomous churches that have built on this statement to formulate the doctrine of salvation by works, where they call upon their members to exercise perfection to the utmost degree, and we will tell them that unless they are perfect and with no error in them and no iota of sin in them, they will go to eternal hell or eternal destruction. I know one particular church that teaches this as central to its doctrinal teachings and they will always use this line as they go out for evangelism and they will be calling people to a standard of perfection. But do you know how they achieve this perfection? They will invite you to their church first of all. They will tell you that the only way to be perfect is to be a member of their church because this church is believed to be the kind that was started to restore the truth that was allegedly found missing in the Bible. They will ask you to believe in their prophets and apostles because unless you do that, you cannot attain perfection. They will ask you to do good works and to behave well and to obey everything the church leaders tell you, even when it is not biblical. Otherwise, if you disobey the leaders, you will not be perfect. They will ask you to perform some secret temple rituals, and they will tell you that unless you perform those rituals, no matter what else you do, you are still not perfect. Perhaps as you listen to me speaking, you are wondering, who decides the standard of perfection and what does it take really to be perfect? Of course, from the scripture in verse 48, we have read that the standard of perfection is our Father in heaven, that we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is. Now, you and I know that God is a perfect being in whom there is no error, never sinned, has a nature that does not know sin, that's why he's called holy. Is there anybody who can really be perfect like our heavenly Father is? You already know the answer, certainly. The answer is no. Nobody can be perfect. In fact, if there is anything as to why the Bible was written, was to show the imperfection of man and the corruption of the whole of creation. From the beginning, we are told that man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Paul recounts the sinfulness of mankind as he opens up the book of Romans and in the first three chapters he is basically talking about the sinfulness of man, his inability to save himself, the useless and futile attempt to attain perfection by man's own personal efforts and why salvation must be of God. There is no doubt whatsoever. That perfection is a standard that no human being can ever achieve or accomplish on his own, and that if it must be a reality in anybody's life, it must be external, it must be an orchestration of an already and always perfect God. An imperfect man has no way to make himself perfect. Jesus certainly is not communicating the idea that we must be perfect like God and that's only when we can attain eternal life. In fact, if you look at this passage very carefully, Jesus is not even talking about eternal life. He's talking about loving one another and especially love for our enemies. In this verse, Jesus is not communicating salvation, he's not communicating eternal life, he's not even talking about how to be right with God because no one can be on his own. If you look at the whole testimony of scripture, it is actually pointing in the opposite direction. Look at First John 1.8 for instance. John says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And since this episode was written to Christians, it seems very clear that Christians in this human mortal life can never claim to have attained perfection while they are still living. In other words, perfection is not something that anybody can ever have while we are still here in this sinful world. Be it a bishop, be it a clergy, be it a prophet or an apostle, the statement in Romans remains for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. If you look at the saints in the Bible, they themselves would point to that very fact. Because even when addressed as saints, they were always aware of their intrinsic sinfulness. For instance, look at how Paul begins his letters. He addresses the different believers in the different churches as saints. But when you go in the following chapters, he begins to rebuke them of their sinfulness and their sinful way of living. So it leaves you wondering, how can they be saints, but at the same time, Paul points out the different sins that they are committing in their congregations. Is it possible that one can be a saint, but also a sinner? Yes, the New Testament points to that fact, actually. That while you are a saint positionally, in a sense that Christ's righteousness has been imputed upon you, you still live in a body of sin, you are still subject to, to temptation, and from time to time you will fall into sin, which is why the same Bible has the idea of repentance and forgiveness of sins. If there was no more sinning, then repentance would not even be a theological teaching in the scriptures. Look at the saints in the Bible. Men like Isaiah in chapter 6 crying out, Woe unto me, a man of unclean lips, a man who lives amongst the people of unclean lips, and yet this is one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. Look at Daniel. Look at how Paul describes believers in Ephesians chapter 3 from verses 8. 
If anyone could have attained perfection, certainly it would have been these prophets in the Bible. It would have been the apostles that we find in the New Testament. Unfortunately or fortunately, none of them actually says they are sinless. They all recognize their limitations as human beings. They recognize that being holy is a process as we continue to grow in the scriptures and become conformed into the image of Christ. And because we still have a sinful nature at work in us, that's why repentance is a call. In First John chapter 2, John says that, My dear children, I write to you so that you may not sin. And then he quickly adds, But if anyone does sin, we have one who stands before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one, who has become the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What is the Apostle John talking about? He's a believer, writing to believers. Uh, but then he says, if anyone does sin, meaning he recognizes the possibility. But you will also notice that all throughout Jesus' ministry, he actually talked about the glaring reality of the sinfulness of man. He thought that human beings have a grave sin problem that is altogether beyond their means to serve. He thought that human beings are evil. Look at Matthew chapter 12 verses 34. And they are capable of great wickedness. Mark chapter 7 verses 20-23. Moreover, he said human beings are utterly lost. That's why we are told in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 that for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. We are sinners who need to be born again. And that is why John 3, as Jesus converses with the religious leader Nicodemus, is saying, unless a man is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice he's not saying unless a man is perfect because Nicodemus would never make himself perfect. The law had clearly failed to make him perfect. Nicodemus being one of the religious teachers of the day, moreover a lawyer in the law of God, he would have been perfect if perfection could come by the law. Yet still Jesus confronts him with that glaring reality. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus will use several metaphors in the New Testament to illustrate the havoc that sin can wreak in somebody's life. He calls it blindness. He calls it sickness. He calls it walking in darkness. He calls it enslavement in bondage. And in all these metaphors or figures of speech, he's basically reminding us that even to think that a man can be perfect in and of himself is utter folly, an insult to what God has done to save mankind, and certainly a chase after the wind. Jesus taught that we are not just sinful, but the whole of who we are, our inner thoughts, our disposition, corruptedly sinful. What you see us doing on the outside as external sins are just an outward manifestation of the inward corruption that characterizes a human being. He thought that from within the human heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, slander, deceit, envy, arrogance, folly. My, the list is endless. Read Mark chapter 7 and you will see. Yet he affirmed that God is not only fully aware of our continued and constant sinfulness, 
But God has also put measures through which we can get rid of our sinfulness. Please notice, it is God who has put measures and not us. So when somebody comes and says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and makes it a non-negotiable rule for being Christian or for going to heaven, what is he actually talking about? He's basically telling you straight in the face of the impossibility of anyone ever being saved. When somebody tells you to be perfect, he's basically telling you that you must attain that perfection on your own. But is that what the Bible really says? Is that how believers become perfect by doing certain things or fulfilling certain rules or obeying certain commandments? Is that what really salvation is about? How is salvation? And again, the whole tenor of scripture will tell us that salvation is the work of God and not of us men. It is begun by God. It is sustained by God. It is consummated by God in glory when we die and we leave this world. That this salvation comes to us by grace. It is an act of kindness that is not deserved by any one of us. That's why the Apostle Paul could write and say that for God demonstrates his love in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And the key word there is the word still. While we were still not when we had perfected ourselves, not when we were clean. No, 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 no. While we were still sinners. And we find that in Romans chapter 5, beginning from verse 8. So what does this verse mean? If it doesn't mean individual personal perfection, if it does not mean attainment and achievement by personal works, if this is not a call to human effort, then what did Jesus really mean when he says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect? For us to understand this verse, we must go to the context of this passage. We must understand what Jesus has been dealing with before he comes to verses 48. A proper reading and understanding of God's word is understanding it in its entire context. Understanding that the Bible is not a series of segregated statements. It is actually a compilation of phrases that work together to bring the meaning of the whole. And if you look at the whole of that passage, especially beginning from verse 43, in your Bibles you may even notice that there is a title, Love for Enemies. Jesus has been talking about how you love your enemies and why it is unchristian to consider loving your friends only and not your enemies. He has challenged his listeners that if you love those who give you back, there is really no difference you have done. Because even sinners love one another, thieves love one another, lepers love one another. And if people love one another and give love to each other in return, then what difference are you making as a Christian to love those who already love you? It is when you love the undeserving, when you extend that favor, that grace, that unexpected and called for kindness, that you not only uh, amaze the recipients, but you actually have gone out of your comfort zone to extend true biblical love to those who desperately need it. It is in the context of loving our enemies and looking at the standard of God's love that Jesus makes that statement in verse 48. So for instance, he's already told us 
that the Father in heaven loves all people regardless of who they are. When he sends the rain, the rain will fall in the gardens of those who are evil and those who are not. When he causes the sun to rise, verse 45, it rises on the evil and the good. And so Jesus is saying, if God who is all loving can love people even when they do not deserve it, how can you a Christian claim that you love only your friends and disregard those who are not? Aren't you supposed to be using the same standard like that of your father? And if your father in heaven is loving both friends and enemies, shouldn't you be doing the same thing of loving both friends and enemies? So when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is, he's talking about the perfection of love that the heavenly father demonstrates in loving both the good ones and the bad ones, in loving those who are evil and those who are not, in loving those who deserve and those who do not deserve. Jesus is saying, look at how the father does it. See how he loves. He loves the evil and those who are not. He loves the bad and the good. Both receive the rain and both receive the sunshine. Therefore, exercise your love with that measure of perfection by loving those who love you back and those who don't. And that is how you become perfect as your heavenly father is. The word perfection here is not used to mean sinlessness or purity or spotlessness. The word perfection within the consideration of this context is actually a perfection without segregation. A kind of love that loves both the godly and the ungodly, the good and the bad, the evil and the not, and that's what the context of the passage is about. So when somebody gets a passage or a Bible verse, that has nothing to do with salvation and uses it as a condition for those who will get saved and eventually closes the door for those who would come in by grace. Do you see how that kind of teaching distorts biblical Christianity? Do you see how dangerous it can be? Not only does it disorganize or does it discourage or disappoint, but it reminds you constantly of how unable you are to be perfect because no one will ever be perfect or spotless on this side of heaven. But if you understand what the Bible is saying, that he is talking about the perfection of the love that we give both to loved ones and those who are not, then you will see the, the, the context from which Jesus is speaking. Unfortunately, we have churches and religious groups that continue to take the words of Jesus, use them and misuse them, misinterpret them and misapply them, and the doctrines that they come up with as a result of their wrong Bible interpretation are the kind that eventually take away the joy of the Lord in his people that add more rules and commandments that are not scriptural and are not even in the Bible, and at the end of the day it becomes a salvation controlled by your pastor. Not a salvation celebrating the freedom that has come to us by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. When you know God's truth, it sets you free. When you live under the false interpretation and commentary of a pastor who has misread and misunderstood the Bible, the end result of that kind of life is spiritual bondage and enslavement. But isn't that what Jesus saved us from? Where are we not in bondage to the law and Jesus came and set us free and now we are under grace and not under law. 
understanding the word of God and especially the statements of Jesus on what he meant and what he did not mean is critically important because what you know Jesus to be is at the center of whether you will be saved or not. Have you found out this truth? What did Jesus really mean? Love one another as you love yourselves. But beyond that, don't just love one another in the sense that they love you back, but love even your enemies. Our Heavenly Father, who is perfect in being, extends that perfection in the way he loves both people deserving and undeserving. And it's a call for all those who belong to the kingdom that we exercise the same love, empowered by the enabling grace of God, of course, that we be able to love not just those who love us back, but even our enemies, and by loving as our Heavenly Father loves, or as Jesus himself sets the example and models for us, we not only bring many to an understanding of Christ's love in the kingdom, but we expand and extend the kingdom to the glory of God. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.